said. All right. Y'all want to greet somebody? I'm going to start saying, y'all want to greet somebody? All right. If you don't, get out of here. But everybody, no, I'm kidding. All right. So, uh, so we're so glad you guys are here with us. Uh, obviously, it's beautiful weather. Uh, a lot of things going on, but you're here with us. And so we greatly appreciate that. Uh, a lot of stuff coming up uh, next week. Not next week, but the week after is fall break here. Uh, and so we have a lot of people that take trips during fall break. So just a reminder, we do have Thursday services this Thursday at 7 p.m. I'm pretty sure there's Kona Ice Truck coming. Uh, if you got kids for Thursday at 7, uh, we have a good time on Thursday nights. And so if you ever have weekend plans or travel plans or whatever, don't forget we have the Thursday. It's the exact same service. Um, and so make sure and visit us on Thursdays. With the exception, okay, and this is where it's going to get confusing. On October 5th, which is fall break week, we don't have Thursday night services because everybody's gone. And so uh, Thursdays, except for fall break. But then on October 12th, and you saw the announcement video, uh, we will have a family night out at Shady Lane Par- uh, uh, Pumpkin Patch. And so what that'll work is it'll be 5.30 to 7.30. Uh, that will be there from 5.30 to 7. You'll be able to go and eat. They've got a lot of food there and pick pumpkins and go for hay rides and stuff for the kids. And then at 7 o'clock, we're going to start an outdoor service. And so... All that to say, download the app because it's the best way to get all this information for us to remind you. We can send push notifications. We can send emails. So you have all of the information you need with all of the stuff coming up. And then the big announcement, obviously, we keep talking about it, is Fall Fest, which is next weekend, September 30th. Um, On Saturday, it's from 10 to 3. If you've never been to our Fall Festival, it's a big festival we put on for the city of Shepherdsville. Three to 4,000 people will be there. Uh, At the festival, we have a a whole lot of vendors, food trucks. There's a petting zoo. I've heard there's going to be some Highland cows there you can take pictures with. And so all kinds of cool stuff for the kids. Uh, Make sure you invite your neighbors, family, friends. Uh, Journey puts this on every year. It's like our gift to the city uh, for the Fall Festival. And so we're super excited about that. We do still need some volunteers. You can stop by the Welcome Center or download the app and volunteer through the app if you would like as well. We also have a bunch of these yard signs. If you've driven in the city of Shepherdsville, you've probably seen the big banners uh, hanging up on uh, Cedar Grove Road and entering Shepherdsville and by the park. Uh, But you can take these yard signs. If you don't want to put them in your yard, you can just put them in your neighbor's yard or whatever you want to do. Be as aggressive as you want with these with permission. Uh, But we want you guys to have those to invite your neighbor's family and friends. Tons of stuff coming up. We're about to be in the holidays. And so there's a lot of stuff coming up as well with that. But we are glad you guys are here today. Now I'm going to breathe because that's a lot. So we are in this Embers series, and this series is based on the idea of what do you do when your faith doesn't seem to be flourishing and on fire, but actually seems to be kind of fading away. And so we've looked at a lot of stories um, from the Old Testament. We kind of walked through parts of the Bible that not a lot of people uh, know about, or if they do know the stories, they may not know all the pieces of the story. And today is going to be no different. So to open, what I want to do is I want to paint a picture for you of a scene. Now, in this scene, what you have is you have a man, an older man, standing on the edge of a hill, looking out over the hill at a giant piece of land before him. And I don't mean just like an acre. I mean, this is land. A land that's terrain and lush and beautiful, filled with everything you can imagine and need. And he's standing on on, on this cliff and he's looking at this and, and there's some history to this land. There's some history of this land that he's standing on. And what the history of this is, it's not just any land. This is a land that's been promised to him. It's a land that's been told is not only for him, but also his people. 
And, and so now they're at this moment in the story where the land is before them. They now see the land. They're physically there. And all the effort, all the trials, all the hard work, all the wondering, it's right there in front of them for them to take. And so Moses, he calls 12 guys. And these aren't just any random guys. These 12 guys actually represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. And, and so he sends them into this land to explore it, to see this land that they've been promised. The question is, well, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to this scene and this story? And, and, and so to understand it, we have to understand is the beginning of the Bible. So if you have a Bible and you open it up or you have it on your phone, a digital version, what, what you'll see is at the very beginning, there's five books. And these five books are incredibly important to Jewish, Jewish history, but also explaining the narrative of everything else that's going to happen after them. Those five books are referred to as the Torah, the Pentateuch. So the first five books of the law. So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And, and, and when you open those, those books, what you see is an unfolding story that also has a question attached to it. Now, these books weren't always books. And it's important for us to understand that. So um, it's, it's not like today where something happens and then somebody's immediately like writing it down or it's on Twitter or one of the news channels is covering it and somebody writes it and next day it's in the New York Times or the Courier Journal or the Wall Street or whatever you happen to, to tr trust and read. And, and so what happened in, in their culture is when something would happen, it would become an oral tradition. It would be a story that would be passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so these first five books are stories about a God. And, and for these people, it wasn't just a God, it was the God. It, it was the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God of all of mankind. And so they would tell these stories about how God interacted with humans, how God interacted with creation, how God interacted with the story that they see unfolding. And they would share these from generation to generation to generation until one day there was a guy that believed that these stories should actually be documented and written down so that next generations wouldn't just have to rely on an oral tradition, but they could actually see the pages of history so that no one would forget everything that happened. The man that they believed that did this is the same man that stood on that hill that same day that we started talked about. It was a guy named Moses. Now, to understand how we got here, we have to understand the story. And so if you open your Bible, you open up the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books, what you see is it starts with a story about two people named Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, they represent the beginning of human flourishing, the beginning of mankind and its relationship with God. And what we see in this story is that they had a great life, that they actually walked with God that they did life with God like physically, not like just, but they actually were right there with him. In fact, it says that they would walk with God in the cool of the evening. Now, if you're a person of faith, you have to think that would be pretty cool, right? Like you go for a walk, um, you know, you go home from work in the evening and you sit down on your front porch and God just happens to stroll by and you're like, hey, God. And he's like, hey, you, you know, and you're like, how was, you? God's like, how was your day? And you're like, oh, it was fine. It was okay. And you're like, God, how was your day? And he's like, well, I created it. So it was pretty good. And so, you know, you have this like interaction of walking with God and it's good, in fact, the Bibles we talked about it in week one, it talks about this idea that when man enters the story, God changes the language about creation from good to very good. And everything's good until the question we talked about creeps in. 
And what we see is there's this one day where Adam and Eve represent mankind. They buy into this lie. And the lie is simple, but it's also subtle. And the lie is this. Did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat or touch that? Did God really say that you can't do that? And and the motive behind all of that questioning of the God really say is, does God really know best? Can you actually trust God that he actually knows what's best? And in this story, we see that Adam and Eve, they're tempted because they want to know what God knows. And it's a good question. Did God really know what's best? Does God really know what's best for us as humans? And the Bible says that they eat from this fruit that God had told them not to. And, and there's this separation that takes place. There's this unfolding of events. The Bible says that God walks into the garden and he's looking for Adam and Eve. And the first question that God asks of Adam and Eve is, where are you? And I don't think it was a geological question. I don't think it's like, oh, I didn't see you behind the bushes. You know, it, it's, it's a heart question. Like, where are you in your heart? And I believe it's the same question that's repeated to us even to this day. Where are you? And what we see in this story is that even as they stand there in their nakedness and their shame, and the Bible says this is what happens is that when you question God and you get this knowledge, all of a sudden you, you start to realize who you are and your place in the world. And what's amazing about the story that we see unfold is that God's first response to this is not anger. The Bible says that he covers them up. He covers up their shame. And so things have been set in motion from the very beginning of people always believing, though, what's best and right. And the question is, can God actually be trusted? And what we see from this, and we've seen this in pattern throughout human history, is when people do what's right in only their eyes, and and this, what happens is that things start to kind of happen. You can get to the point in the story where it says that God was sorry in his heart, that he was grieved because of the wickedness of man. And the reality is, is we could look back at that, and we could look at the story and be like, well, you know, that's a long time ago. Um, We're not really doing a bang-up job right now either, if you haven't paid attention. And so it gets to the point in the story where God says that he's so grieved in his heart because of the wickedness of man that he decides to flood the whole earth. Now, this story is an unusual story because in this story, what happens is um, we teach it to our kids. Like when when we're kids, you know, like you you have kids and so you, you bomb like this little ark toy with all these little animals and you put it in the bathtub and you're like, this represents the story where God killed everybody. You know, like it's a little morbid, right? Because see, this story is actually a very tragic story. It's a sad story. And we should be careful with it. But he reaches out to one family, Noah's family. And he says, if you build this ark. And they're like, what's an ark? And he's like, just trust me, we're going to build this. And so they build this giant thing that nobody even knew what it was. And then eventually we see in the story that the earth gets flooded. And at the end of the story, Noah and his family are left. They've trusted God. They've answered the question. And they begin to worship God and things are good because they're trusting and they're believing and things are really good with humans for like a minute. And then as we start to do what we do as humans, it gets to the point in the story where they get, they they can build this tower because see what they think is in their world, in the ancient worldview, that the gods are up, they're in the clouds, they're in the mountains. And it's because people couldn't go up in the clouds and mountain climbing wasn't a thing yet. So nobody went into the mountains. And so there's where the gods are, where nobody can see them. And so they can build this giant tower, then they can reach the gods. And if they can reach the gods and they can become like the gods. 
And all of these things start to unfold and all of this chaos amongst man and, and man's choices. And it eventually gets to the point where God looks down again and he sees one man. And he says to this one man, he says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And we talked about covenant a few weeks ago. It's a deal. And the deal is not just for you. The deal is going to be for all people moving forward. And so he chooses Abram. And he tells Abram that I have this land. This land that I'm going to promise you, but not just you, all of the future generations. He says, if you trust me, if you trust that I can do this, and if you're willing to follow me. And Abraham says that he'll follow him. But there's a problem because see, whenever you're promised something like that, it's not just for you, it's for your future descendants. And Abraham doesn't have any kids as we talked about. And so he's around 70 years old at this point in the story and his wife's old as well. And so they don't see this happening. And so he looks around to Sarah and Sarah and they look at their servant Hagar, which is a terrible name for a woman as we've talked about. And he says, why don't you go sleep with her? And bad idea, guys, especially even if your wife suggests it, still a bad idea. And so they go and he sleeps with the servant and she gets pregnant and they have a son named Ishmael. But then God comes in and says, God says, it's not what I said. See, do you trust me? Because I said Sarah. And Sarah laughs. And nine months later, she gives birth to a son named Isaac, which names means laughter. And here the story starts to unfold because Isaac, again, he starts to, God starts to bless Isaac. And Isaac is given two sons, one named Jacob and one named Esau. And, and these two, they don't like each other. They're twins. And so they battle and they fight and they bicker. But eventually God out of this chooses Jacob. And he says he's going to bless Jacob. And he's going to send Jacob on a journey. And he even tells journey, this journey I'm going to send you on, what you have to understand is that the Messiah is going to come from your descendants. But that's a big calling. And Jacob struggles with it. He struggles with his past and what happened with him and his father. He struggles with what happened with him and his brother. He's not sure that he's worthy of this calling. And so he even struggles with his future. And eventually he gets to the point in the story where he literally wrestles with God. He actually wrestles with God. And the question behind all of this wrestling is, can God actually be trusted? And so at the end of this wrestling match, God looks at Jacob, and he says, here's what you have to know. You're you're no longer going to be called Jacob. You're going to get a new name. And that new name is going to be Israel. And Israel literally is translated the ones who struggle with God, which means that if you struggle with God, you're in good company. Because even the name given to God's chosen people represents this. And so Isaac, or Israel now, at this point in the story, he has 12 sons, which will represent the 12 tribes of Israel, God's chosen people. Now, Jacob had some issues, as we all do, and some of those stem from his past and his relationship with his dad. And so he has 12 sons, but just because you have 12 sons doesn't mean you're a good dad. And so he looks at one particular son, and he says, you're my favorite. And this son's name is, is Joseph, and he, he treats Joseph different than all of the other brothers, and he even gives him special gifts. Now, you have to imagine if you have 10 older brothers and one younger brother, and you're given all this special treatment, that's not going to go well. And one day, Joseph doesn't help himself. He stands up at dinner, and he says, hey, guys, I had this dream last night. You're going to love this dream. This dream is that I'm basically the king of the world, and you're a bunch of nothings, right? To which his brothers immediately respond by beating the snot out of him. And then throwing him in a well. But it goes one step further. They end up selling Joseph into slavery. I mean, this is a dysfunctional family at its core. One of the things that always amazes me is when people say, I want a biblical marriage or a biblical family. I'm like, good luck finding a good example. 
because this is a story that's real about people and they're struggling and they're questioning the same question that's always asked, can God actually be trusted? Joseph gets hauled off to Egypt and he gets bought by this guy named Potiphar and Potiphar is this powerful man in the area. But see, what's interesting is Joseph remains faithful and loyal to God and being who God has called him to do in spite of the circumstances that he finds. And one day, because he's a young man and he's willing to do whatever, Potiphar's wife, she throws herself at Joseph. But Joseph is a loyal man, not only to the promises of God, but also to the people that have helped him. And so he refuses to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife does this again and again, and those advances at him. And Joseph, he says, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to sin against God. I'm not going to sin against your husband, Potiphar. And this story kind of takes place. And I love this story because eventually he gets thrown in prison because of her false accusations. And I love this story because finally the woman's the pig, right? And so, just kidding. And so in this story, he gets thrown into prison. Now, here's what you have to know. If your story includes you were thrown into prison, you have all the right in the world to ask, can God be trusted? especially if you get thrown into prison for doing the right thing. But there's this line that keeps popping up in the story of Joseph is that no matter what he faces, the Bible keeps telling us the Lord was with Joseph. And eventually while he's in prison, Pharaoh has this dream, this disturbing dream, and nobody can interpret it. But Joseph has been given this ability to interpret dreams. And finally, he's presented in front of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in all of the world. And Pharaoh tells him his dream. And Joseph's like, that's simple. Here's what you have to understand. There's a famine that's coming. Unless you act right now, not only will the entire world be suffering, but you yourself will be suffering, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh believes him. And so Pharaoh, because he believes him and he trusts Joseph, and what happens is this famine actually takes place. And now the trust has been solidified. So Pharaoh puts Joseph in front of the entire kingdom and makes him second in command. And now all of a sudden he actually is like king of the world. Because the famine strikes the whole land, not just Egypt, everybody has to go back to Egypt to get grain. And one day these 11 brothers get together and they go back to Egypt. And as soon as they stand in front of Joseph, Joseph knows exactly who they are he's carried the weight and the pain of what's happened to him. But they don't know who he is. And so he plays some tricks on him as you would do with somebody like this. And, and eventually he gets to the point where he reveals to him and he says, hey, just so you guys know, do you remember me? I'm your brother, Joseph. To which they reply, oh no, it's the guy that we beat the snot out of and threw into a well. And Joseph says in one of the best lines of all the Bible, he says, no, what you have to understand is it's okay. Because what you meant for evil, God actually meant for good. And what I want you to do is I want you to go get all of your family and I want you to bring them back to Egypt. And you guys are going to live here in Egypt with me. And we're going to take care of each other. And what happens in this story is they all move back to Egypt. And because they're a big family, 12 brothers and, 12 brothers and sisters, and they start to populate. And eventually after some time, eventually what happens to realize is there's as many Israelites in Egypt as there is Egyptians which worries all of the leaders in the land. And they say, hey, if we're not careful, the, the Israelites, there's so many of them, they could actually overtake Egypt. And so Egypt, the Pharaoh gets nervous and he makes the, Egypt, the Israelites slaves and servants. And you got to think, this is not the promise that was made. This is not the promise that was made to Abraham. And the number of Israelites continue to grow and grow and grow. And eventually it gets to the point, the Pharaoh gets so nervous, he passes this law. And in this law, it says that any Israelite boy that's born must immediately be put to death. And everybody goes along with it. Except for one lady. He says, not my baby. And she builds this little basket. 
She takes her child and she puts him in the river and she sends him down the river. And the princess of Egypt finds this baby floating in the basket and she pulls him out. And she takes on this baby to be her own. This baby named Moses. He's raised in the palace until one day he sees an Egyptian mistreating an Israelite and deep down in his soul he knows that these are his people. And so he defends the Israelite. He kills the Egyptian. He gets accused of murder and has to run for his life. And for 40 years he's out in the desert. He's wandering around as a shepherd. And then one day he goes up this mountain and he sees this bush that's on fire but it's not burning, which is really weird. Can we just acknowledge the weird parts of the Bible? And so he sees this bush and the bush starts to talk to him and he believes that it's it's God. And here's what God tells him. God says, I've heard the cries of my people. And I made a promise a long time ago that I plan on keeping. And Moses, I need you to go and to rescue my people. And they argue back and forth for a little bit of time. And all of a sudden there's this battle. And eventually Moses says yes. And so he goes to Pharaoh and he says, as Madonna says, let my people go. And he does this. And there's these 10 plagues and everything that happens and all this craziness. And eventually it gets to the point where finally the Pharaoh caves in. And he actually says, you go and you take your Israelites and you leave and take everything with you. And now there's a massive exodus. And they make it to the Red Sea with Pharaoh regrets his decision right on his heels with all the Egyptian army. And God saves them. But now they're exiles without a home. And after some time, Moses sits down and here's what God tells him. Moses, I made a promise to your great ancestor. His name was Abraham. And I promised him that I would take him to a land. And I'm going to keep my promise and I want you to follow me there. A lot of history in five minutes. That's about a thousand pages in your Bible, so just know that, okay? So finally, this great adventure begins, and God is leading them to the promised land. And here's the thing that Moses wanted everybody to know when he writes these stories down is that God kept every single one of his promises, and he can be trusted. And not only that, when they get out into this wilderness, what happens is they don't know where they're going. And so God actually leads them. And the way he leads them is that by day, he's this big cloud that they can follow. And by night, he's this great fire, this pillar of fire that they can follow. I mean, we often wonder where is God in the world? I mean, how much awesomer would it be if we could just walk out in the parking lot and be like, have you seen God? I haven't seen God. Oh, there he is. And you just look up at this cloud and now you know exactly where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to do. This is the way that God led them. And it even gets to to the point where they're out wandering around and, and so they run out of water and so God tells Moses hey just go talk to that rock like a crazy person but just go talk to that rock okay and Moses goes and he talks to the rock and water starts flowing out of the rock enough for all of the people to drink and then one day they're hungry and the people are starting to complain because they don't have enough food and so Moses goes and he tells God hey we don't have enough food and so the Bible tells us that, that this manna this bread just starts showing up and the people can collect it and then one day they, they get tired of the manna because we should eat meat forget the vegetarians and so um, all of this stuff happens and so all of them just kidding and so all of these quail go flying through the camp and they're able to capture these quail and all of a sudden now all of their needs have been met i mean here's the thing i'm getting hungry because i haven't ate today if i walked out there right now and was like hey god and chicken and biscuits just fell from the sky right this is what we're talking about and you're like any honey mustard because we need something god is leading them physically leading them and taking care of them and now they're standing on the cliff looking at the promised land 
It's ready for them to take. And God has led them all of the way to this journey. So what happens? Numbers chapter 13. After exploring the land for 40 days, there's that theme with 40 again, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit that they had taken from the land. And this is what they report to Moses. We entered the land you sent before us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. I mean, here's what they're saying. It's everything you promised, Right? It's a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a weird description if you ask me, but a land flowing with milk and honey and there's this fruit and it's everything that we ever wanted. It's everything we've ever been promised. Okay, but verse 28, the people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified and we even saw giants there, descendants of Anak. Like, God, hey, you've led us this far, and I know that you've been super faithful, and I know that cool trick with the Egyptians and the water and the waves and all that stuff, good stuff, um, but now there's another problem, and there's these giants, and they've got big cities and fortified and all of this stuff, and, and so here's the thing. This is what happens to all of us. God leads us and leads us and leads us and leads us, but then all of a sudden, just like last week with Elijah, the next problem pops up. The next thing, the next season, the next issue But Caleb, and I love Caleb, he's a good dude, tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who explored the land with him disagreed. And here's why they disagree. Ready? We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. Now, I highlighted this verse because there's two problems with this verse in their minds. And those two problems are the word we. We can't. Of course you can't. You can't take on giants. You can't take on fortified cities. We can't do it. You also couldn't evade the Egyptian army. Remember that whole thing? You couldn't free yourself from Egypt. You couldn't do any of that stuff. Abraham couldn't do the things that he did by himself. Jacob couldn't do the things he did by himself. So they spread this bad report about the land amongst the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there, descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. Now, here's what you have to understand about what's going on in in this thing, and it still happens today. Listen, if you don't believe you can do something you will prove it 100% of the time. And and there's like this negativity. Have you ever noticed it only takes a little bit of negativity and it just spreads like cancer? Like it just spreads. So they don't believe they can do it. So we can't. Now all of a sudden these rumors start popping up and all of these things. Forget the fact that God had promised them. Forget the fact that God had literally by a pillar of fire and a cloud and provided all the water and food they need to get them there. Forget all of that stuff. Now, all of a sudden, there's some setbacks. There's some obstacles. There's giants. Everything that they now face seems impossible. Forget everything that God's brought them through. All they see is what stands before them, and it just seems like it might be too much. 
Regardless of what you've been through, regardless of what God has brought you through and how faithful he's been, now there's a new challenge, now there's a new giant, now there's a new problem, and we can't do this. And not only does it stay with them, the message spreads. Listen to what it says. Then the whole community, in verse 14, chapter 14, began weeping aloud and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. Ready? Are you ready for this? This is insane. If only we had died in Egypt. What? You think it's better to be dead than what you're doing right now? If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the world taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Where you were slaves for 400 years? When you had no choices you could make of what you do, what you wear, what you eat, what gods you worship, any of that stuff. The 400 years where you cried so loud that God actually heard the cries and sent a rescuer to you. Or you want to go in the wilderness? See, we we skipped over this part. The reason that God had to keep providing all this stuff is because the people kept complaining about how miserable the wilderness was over and over and over again. And the reason I bring up all this is because here's what I've learned is the great problem that you and I have. We have short-term memories right? You see, we have a new challenge and, and it seems hard. And so we're like, well, let's go back to the way that it was before. Really? The way it was before where you complained all the time? Well, you know what? It was easier when I was with them. Really? It was easier when you were with that person? Do you remember all the things you used to say about that person? Well, it was easier when I was back. Do you remember what it was like? The problem is they didn't and neither do we. And we can forget. And what's amazing at this point in the journey is time and time again, God has been faithful. Over and over again. And every time they cry and every time they reach out and every time they complain, God meets them where they are. It even gets to the point where where they say this. Then they plotted, verse 4, amongst themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Hey, Moses, thanks for that rescue thing. That was awesome. Let's just go back. See, what happens is sometimes when we face a problem is our world shrinks down to the size of just that problem. And we can be irrational. And then we can think, oh, this is the end. There's nothing worth doing. There's nothing worth living for. There's nothing worth... Listen, they would rather go back to slavery than to face the next challenge. Now, news spreads of this, and this gets back to the two guys actually said, no, we can do this. And so Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of that guy's name, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. Now, before we go to the next verse, um, here's what you have to know in verse eight. Hopefully it comes up. Um, Watch the shift. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land. Now, what were all the complainers saying? We can't do this. But Caleb's going, no, no, you understand, guys, we have a focus problem. We're focusing on the wrong thing. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. See, here's what some of us don't realize about the problems we face, okay? They aren't your battle to fight. 
This wasn't their battle to fight. This had been prompt. God had led them here. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not be afraid of the people of the land because we will be devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. We can't do it. You're right, you can't. I can't do it sometimes. You're right, I can't. In my own strength, in my own way, I don't have what it takes to face the next thing. But Caleb realizes something. This isn't even his fight. God's led him there. God's promises. Look at all the stuff that's happened. All of the things that God has brought them through to get them to this point. They're literally standing on the cliff looking at the land. And and then, if you've never read this part of the story, this is where it gets kind of crazy. So Moses goes back to God. And he's like, okay, so God, here's the thing. Um, The people don't want to go into the land, right? I mean, do you understand how insane that is? Like, you know, I know you brought us here and you've done all this stuff and like the rescue thing, you know, we're a little appreciative of that. We kind of want to go back. It's a little messed up. Um, But God, okay, so um, we, we don't think you can do the next thing. If you've never read this, this is amazing. God actually replies to this. And here's what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they never believe me? Even after all the miraculous signs I've done among them? And I love this reply by God because see, I I, I took it out of not just he's talking about this situation. When I read this verse, I, I, I was really convicted to think about myself. Like, how long am I going to hold God in contempt? How many times is God going to do something in me, with me, through me, around me, and I'm just not going to believe he's big enough or strong enough or can help me make the next thing? How long are we going to keep playing this game? And that's why I love the beginning of the Bible. For <laughs> the beginning of the Bible, it's like, here's the thing. Um, did God really say, can God really be trusted? And it's this pattern over and over again to thousands of years later. Now we're standing here and I'm asking myself the same question. And maybe for some of you, if you want, you should ask yourself this question. How long? How many times does God have to be faithful? How many times does God have to show up? How many times does God have to keep his promises? But then the next thing comes up and you're just like, I don't know. Ten of the scouts brought back a negative report. All the reasons they can't. But Joshua and Caleb kept their eyes on God. Now, these two guys, um, they stand out for a couple reasons. Okay, And, And so 12 guys are sent in to this this area. Now, these 12 guys represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's all of Israel's represented in this. So let me ask you a question, a little quick history lesson. Um, do you know anybody at all with the name Shema, Shaphtith, Egal, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sether, Nabi, or Guel? You got like a cousin or something? Right? You know anybody? But let me ask you a question. Do you know somebody named Joshua or Caleb? Yeah. Think about that. Think about the significance of this story. You, you don't even know the real names. They don't even sound like real names. They sound like 
reject Sesame Street characters or something. Like they're not even like real things. And, and yet here in Shepherdsville, Kentucky, which could not be any further different, okay, than 5,000 years ago, you know, Israel, okay, let's just be honest. And you know people named Joshua and Caleb. See, history is not often kind to those who cower in the face of adversity, but rewards those who stand up in it. These guys never relented in their belief that God could give them the land, that he would do what, exactly what he said he was going to do. You never know what hangs in the balance of your choice to have faith and to act upon that faith, to believe that God actually will keep his promises, to actually answer the question, yes, God actually can be trusted even in this. And so God looks at Moses, he says, how long will these people hold me in content? And I didn't read the next part because it gets much, much worse. It gets to the point in the story, I'm not making this up. God has to be reminded by Moses, hey, you're supposed to be loving and forgiving, right? And God says, no, here's the thing. How long, what do I have to do? I just rescued them from Egypt. So nobody in this generation will enter the promised land. Except for two guys. 40 years later, standing probably on the same mountain, overlooking the same land. Joshua, who is now the leader of all of Egypt, and Caleb, who's 85 years old. Now, I am not trying to be ageist at all. How many 85-year-olds you know that are standing on a mountain ready to go to battle, fight a war? Not many. See, most of us, we get to the point where we get to that age and we believe our best years are behind us, not in front of us. But Caleb stands on this mountain next to Joshua, looking at the land. And here's what he says. It's amazing. And now behold, the Lord has kept me alive. As he said, these 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel wandered in the wilderness. And now here I am this day, 85 years old. Every day, every morning, every breath. Caleb believed the promise of God and he waited 40 years for this moment. Most of us give up in four hours, maybe four days if we're really faithful. 40 years. And here's what he says. As yet I am strong this day as the day that Moses sent me, just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and for coming in. Now therefore, ready? Give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. And what he's saying here is about that mountain. I don't care what stands in front of me. I'm believing and trusting in the promise of God. He did not lead us this far just to leave us hanging. A couple thousand years later, Jesus stands with a group of disciples. These guys are going to change the world. It's going to change at the point that you and I even know about the name of Jesus. And so he stands at the bottom of this mountain, and he's explaining to them how faith works. And here's what he says. He says it in verse 17, or chapter 17, verse 20. I tell you the truth. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it would be possible. Nothing would be impossible. Now, here, here's how faith works. It's not the size of your faith. It's the object of your faith. Caleb had complete trust 
and the object of God and who God was and all of the things he'd heard, all the things his mama had told him and his grandma had told him and the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and now Moses. He believed these stories. He trusted these things. His faith was solely secured on God. And now Jesus is saying to these people, hey, listen, you got any mountains in your life? Got any giants? You got any obstacles? You got any things that are holding you back? You got any fractured relationships, past that seem to chase you around? You have a disease in your life or cancer or some type of prognosis? You have some type of fear of the future or doubts? Do you have an overwhelming sense of anxiety? Is there something in your life that's causing you fear and causing you to hold back from actually entering the land that God has led you to? Is there any of that? Because here's what you need to know. If you have faith, even just this small and the object of your faith is God, he says, listen, you can tell that mountain to get out of the way and it gets out of the way. Jesus stops. And he looks at his disciples and he says, what's the object of your faith? See, it's this old story. It started with the first people. Can you trust God? Do you trust him? See, what's fascinating to me about Jesus is simply this. Um, whenever Jesus is about to do something like miraculous in somebody's life, whenever he's about to like take them from the threshold of the land that they could be in versus the land that they are currently in, we talked about this before, and, and the land of what is versus the land of what could be. Do, do, do you know the question that Jesus asked people? He never asks them, when was the last time you prayed and how long did you pray? He never asks them, when was the last time you went to church? He never even asked them, in spite of today's culture, how much money do you give to the church? Didn't even come up. He never asked you how good you are. Do you know what he would ask people before he did something amazing in their life? It's a simple question. He would just say, do you believe I can do this? Do you believe? Do you trust me? And so listen, here's what you have to know. There will always be giants in the land. There will always be mountains that have to be moved. So what giants are you facing? What mountain is in your way? Can you trust this age-old story about a God who's faithful? A God who keeps his promises? And a God who says that he will do what he says he will do? Can you trust, even if it's just, and I get it, some of you are going through some stuff. The only faith you can muster up might be the size of a mustard seed. But it's always about the object of your faith, not necessarily the size of your faith. Can you trust God? Can you trust his promises? Can you believe that God hasn't brought you to the edge of this mountain and this cliff looking at the land that's promised just to leave you hanging? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you. I thank you for stories. I thank you for men like Caleb, who's a real person and I can't wait to meet one day, um, that does amazing things and has this faith that just transcends circumstances because he trusts and he believes. God, I thank you for the stories, these ancient stories this, that writes this narrative that starts the story off by asking the question, can we trust you? And God, my hope is that we can. And I hope that, that myself and the people in this room, when we face obstacles, when we face giants, when we face mountains, that we can muster up, even if it's just the size of the mustard seed, the faith to trust you, to believe you, to believe that you will keep your promises, the belief that you haven't led us this far, just let us suffer. God, you actually brought us out of something for something. You didn't bring us out of something just so we want to go back to slavery, go back to whatever it was, the wilderness, that we can trust you that you're bringing us this far for a reason. 
And God, may we have the faith, the trust to believe, to hold on, even in the hard times. Father God, may we continue to get the grace, the mercy we need, the strength we need, the peace we need, the wisdom that we need to even face some of life's hardest obstacles. God, we love you, we thank you, we thank you for the grace you give us, the life you give us, and the love you give us. In your son's name we pray, amen. Every week we come to this time, we celebrate the hope that we have, uh, that Jesus himself had obstacles to face and a mountain to face. And so God, we just take this time and we celebrate that his willingness to be in line with his father, to give of himself, to give of himself fully so that we could have the hope that we have. And so we take the bread, which represents his broken body, and the juice represents his blood, that gives us the hope that we have in Jesus. So all that we ask is we start to worship as you respond accordingly.